What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the ProHo Podcast. My name is Penda Jai. I am the host and the founder. I am joined by Shadeen Francis today, LMFT, with a focus on sex and relationships, social justice. We are so excited to have her here and to speak on the topic of pleasure, joy, and especially during this time, something that for Black people and our Black bodies, it's especially important to discuss and to tap into. So without further ado, welcome, Shadeen. Hi, thank you for having me. Hi, everybody. Um, I am Shadeen Francis, as said already, marriage and family therapist. I'm a licensed psychotherapist. And my particular lane of uh, specialty is sex therapy and social justice. So I get to do the really fun work of helping people really access peace and pleasure in the lives that they're living. What do you mean when you when you talk about social justice in relationships and what type of work are you diving into? Ooh. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, there's, <laughs> there's lots of different ways for me to to dive into that. I think I'll first start with what kind of social justice. I use that term really broadly and I know that especially right now, that's like a signal flare for a lot of folks, right? We're in the midst of a global revolution where that will put us, right, is yet to be seen because we're still just so in the work. Um, But particularly the way I inhabit sort of the very, very broad and expansive world of justice work um, is that because I see the world as a constellation of relationships, really being able to invite people back into attention to the ways in which we relate to one another, particularly the ways in which we use power and the way power can be an access or a barrier to us experiencing peace and pleasure. And deeper than that, even just our basic needs around, like, are our physical bodies being taken care of? Am I safe? Do I have access to connection, et cetera, et cetera? And I I came into that work... um, (laughs) <laughs> if anyone has, has followed me before, they'll they'll know part of this story. Um, I was pretty certain I was a mutant uh, for a really long time, like like literally a mutant, not just like oh you're weird. Like no, I like literally thought like cellularly, like I am like quantitatively different <laughs> than, than other people. I was very very positive. Um, and my father is an engineer, and my mom is mad supportive, so uh, they just let me do it. <laughs> Yeah, shout out to the parents. (laughs) They're just like, all right, like you're still coming to church and doing your homework. So whatever you want to do in your spare time, it's cool. Um, And so I I really spent a long time like hoping my powers would manifest. And, you know, I'd put myself in literal physical danger uh, because in the comics, you know, like that's how your powers activate, like from trauma. Uh, That was an interesting uh, series of years. Um, But I, I really came into deciding that, oh, I might I might pivot that when I ended up witnessing part of a conversation um, for anyone who knows Sue Johansson. She's almost like the Canadian equivalent of Dr. Ruth. She had a late night TV show. And I was really in a place where I was just feeling uh, really stuck around how I was going to really be able to use my powers to help people. Um, you know, nothing was manifesting in particular. I wasn't positive I could like move shit with my mind or like teleport or anything. And so I was getting kind of worried I might be a normie. And what happened at that time was I ended up sort of falling into this show and someone called in to say, thank you so much for your work. You saved my life. Wow. 
And so I was like, oh, cool. I'll just do this. <laughs> like, like, You're like, this is it. This is the superpower. Yeah. yeah. Like what, whatever it is that she's doing, I'll just, I'll just do that. And so I, I tell this story um, whenever like folks always ask me like how I got into this work. It's interesting. Like people don't really ask like, what made you become a doctor? Right. Like, you know, if you say you're a sex therapist, people are like, what made you do that? Um, <laughs> but y- you know, that, that is how I, how I got here. And I, felt really committed or feel really committed to using whatever gifts I've been able to to come about or develop to support people in feeling like their lives are better. I wow, that's so beautiful and especially the part when you said that when you look at our superheroes um that their superpowers come from their trauma and I think that's so incredible to realize that the way that we grow and the way that we expand our mind and our thinking and the way that we relate to other people is by processing our trauma and deciding how we are going to use it, how we release it, how it heals us. So I think that that's such an incredible point that you brought up that all all of our experiences, even if they were poor or bad or hurt us, really lend themselves to making us more powerful in the end. So I think that that is a really telling and, and true story that you just shared with us. But I wanted to circle back also because you said that um, your work is focusing on making people feel safe in their body. And for someone who maybe hasn't had access to mental care or knows exactly what that means, can you talk a little bit about what it, what it feels like to be safe in your body? Yeah. Um, And, and I need to name, like, I can't, I can't promise anybody safety, right? That Mm -hmm. while I want to make more opportunities for folks to feel safer, right? That I can't pretend that like, I'm going to be able to create a safe space because I think what we have to acknowledge about the way many of our lives, most of our lives exist is that like, we are experiencing disproportionate amounts of trauma to what is actually beneficial to our growth, right? That my definition, very, very broad definition of trauma is anything with intense, unexpected impact. Mm. Right? So there is room for intense, unexpected impact to make way for us to, yeah, lean in and for us to grow and make change. But what we are more often experiencing is systemic trauma right trauma that is maintained over time and built into the structures and the fibers of the world that we live in and we are disproportionately um accessing trauma depending on the identities that we're holding right so people of color any person who you know doesn't identify as cisgender anybody who doesn't identify with the gender binary people who don't believe sort of the dominant political ideologies, women, et cetera, et cetera, that there are so many ways in which some groups are experiencing more trauma, more consistent trauma, more complex and nuanced trauma than others. And so when I think about the experience of safety, I also think about like, where are the periods of time at which you get reprieve from impact? Where are the periods of time? Literally, I'm very intentional about the word peace. Like, where is peace in your world? Do you have access to peace anywhere? And how how might we create more opportunities for that? Knowing that I am not going to be able to change the systemic structure of your life. What would it mean for us to not internalize that? And individualize that or personalize that as there is something wrong with me. Absolutely. And I think to your point of 
about finding peace, and I say this about self-care as well, is that self-care, you know, you see this kind of, you know, vast movement on social media about self-care and about taking time for yourself. But really, self-care is a privilege and a privilege that not everyone has access to. And I mean, Mm. self-care can mean, you know, meditating for 15 minutes at night. But if you think about like, to your point of systemic racism, you don't even have 15 minutes at night because it takes you two hours to get home from work and then you have four children and then you are studying for night school or et cetera, et cetera. A lot of us, the people in the categories that you just listed previously, don't have access to even small moments of self-care or peace. So then it it feels like even finding that safety is something that is just not easily accessible to us. Right. And we've really commodified what it means to have self-care or practice self-care. That self-care has now become like affiliated with our larger capitalist structures, right? So like get a haircut, go get a massage, buy this thing, right? Do this, mm-hmm. right? It's very much about like the doing. But what what does it mean to care? What does it mean to have care? It's to look after. It's to, you know, have intentional concern or interest in. Self-care isn't always just about the doing. Like, do I literally care about myself? Do I care for myself? And what would that look like in this moment? Like, what do I need for my health or for my protection or for my welfare? It's not always in, like, I'm doing this thing for self-care. Like, how much did you think about that? Or did you just reach for what has been promoted as self-care? And for whoever is promoting the self-care, like, like who gave you this idea and why? Like, who benefits? I think it's yes. always worth us checking in, like, even in the ways that we're taking care of ourselves. Like, who, like, where did we learn this? And who might benefit from us doing this? And I was speaking with another therapist previously, and we were discussing how just even existing right now in this current state of the world, there really is no guaranteed safety. And no. like you said in the beginning, it's like you can, we can never guarantee safety to anyone, even as a therapist or as a doctor, as a parent, you can't guarantee safety to another human being. But what we can do is create the safety and the peace in our mind. And I think that's exactly what you're saying is what is really the care part of it? And it's, if we can't, feel it all the time in the outside world and how we step out into the world and how we're seen, then really the responsibility lies within ourselves to do the work of creating in our mental space, just some respite, some moment of peace and some moment of feeling in your body. Right. You know, I think we miss like safety is an experience, right? Safety isn't this like, you know, concrete thing. Like, yes, freedom from immediate harm. And also there's a lot of ways that we could encounter harm, right? Spiritual harm, social harm, emotional harm, intellectual harm, right? So I exist within like the the higher ed space. I teach graduate school. Um, And any person who has encountered, you know, a, a school system can also understand that like academia can be an incredibly violent place. Yes. Right. And and so there's just so many ways that we can encounter harm. And so, again, like, what would it look like for you to have peace? Like, what would it look like for you to feel like you are not in the midst of harm? And yes. 
that you know to me really brings me back to thinking also about pleasure right i don't think that these are the same thing i don't think freedom from pain is the same as pleasure um and so i think both of those are important in moving us sort of collectively forward whatever forward might might be right but when i think about like what it would mean to be well in the world or at least the world that i would like to participate in creating it's how do we navigate the harms that we have encountered or are encountering? And then how do we also create more opportunities to feel good? I want to definitely touch on the pleasure aspect that you brought up, but also in your work, what are some of the missteps that you see in the education world when it comes to sex education mm. or even t- t- you know learning about pleasure and joy? So it's almost horrific, um, you know, the state of sex ed. And I can't speak to other places in the world. I'm Canadian. Um, so I know the Canadian education system. I know the American education system because that's where I teach. Um, And so North American, we might say, or at least Canadian and U.S. sex ed largely is atrocious, right? That like in the States, there are very few states in which your sex ed is even required to be medically accurate. Like think about that for a moment, right? Like the place at which you go to learn things and parents have largely opted out of these conversations because their expectation is that you're learning it in school, that it is not required for the information to be truthful. Mm. Like every time I say that, that gives me chills. Like I, we are, we can indoctrinate people to not understand their bodies and not understand how to relate to one another, not have realistic or attainable accesses to pleasure. The fact that the teaching is based on information that doesn't even have to be factual And then for us to leave school and come home and not continue the conversation is really a frightening theory, but also makes a lot of sense in the ways that as adults now, we we act out. um, We're still doing all of this unlearning and all of the indoctrinated teaching is not benefiting us to thrive in healthy relationships or relationships with ourselves, with self-worth, with trusting, with intimacy. So it really, it really, I mean, it's not shocking. It's shocking, but not shocking. (laughs) Right, right. And so a lot of my work as a sex therapist is this process of unlearning, right? It's permission giving, giving people the opportunity to like be sexual beings and show up how they're showing up, Um, providing information to folks. So really helping them know more, um, allowing them the opportunity to know more about themselves. I'm not the expert on anybody else, right? I just mm-hmm. happen to know the things that I know really well, um, yeah. <laughs> right? And that, But there, there are some things that are just like point blank true, right? Like lubrication is not the best measure of whether or not someone is aroused, right? Like pe- mm-hmm. people don't know that, right? Like yes. your first time isn't supposed to be excruciatingly painful for someone with a vulva, right? Like- People don't know that, right? There's just, there's so much misinformation. Like people with penises are not always going to have erections. And even if they're accustomed to having erections when they're aroused, that's going to change over the course of your life, right? That desire is not the same as arousal. There's just so many little bits of information. Um, You can live happily and successfully and freely with STIs. Like there, there, right there, there are so many bits of information that people don't have um, because they were never taught 
and where would you learn it and even if you discover something on your own now you have to hope that you connect with a partner that is willing to believe you (laughs) or right or or listen to you or negotiate with you or operate with you around sex that isn't based in the same fear and shame that most of us were taught and those of us who weren't taught fear or shame often got nothingness um silence right yes and so there there's just so much room there's i while it can be discouraging to lay it out in this way for me it also feels just like such fertile soil um which is inter- interesting use of that word in the context of sex but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right pun, pun, pun intended <laughs> right but that there's just so much space for us to like plant something really beautiful in instead right that yeah even when we like char the land right or have just made like a muck of it i think there's just i think most people really want to connect you know, with themselves, right? And we're all actually wired for connection to others, right? Our first instincts are survival and then connection. And so I think people really are wanting sex lives that don't feel the way we were told they were going to feel or taught that they should feel, right? That you're supposed to feel ashamed about this or guilty about this or scared of this, right? Like if, if someone is attracted to you as a person with a vulva, you know, like you should be afraid of them because they're going to harm you, right? Like we we need to unlearn mm. that. And it doesn't mean that there's not a risk of that, but also we need to unlearn that other folks have agency over our bodies or that we have dominion over anyone else's body, right? So all yes. of these relations, there's no way for me to talk about sex, about pleasure, about peace with also having to then do that social justice piece that we talked about in the beginning, looking at power and looking at structure, right? Because when we talk about unlearning, we didn't just all decide, this is what I'm going to know about sex, right? Like we were taught there's a hierarchy here. And at the time when we didn't know anything else, there are systems in place that are invested in what we do and don't know. You know, I think that's a great segue why you think um, pleasure is political, because I Mm. do think a lot of those systems that some of us don't realize are in place are really obstructing our sexual liberties. And not even about when we're when we speak about pleasure, not just being limited to sexual pleasure, but pleasure that is platonic pleasure through a friendship, through expression of joy, through dancing, because when I look at you know, my community specifically, I see so much pleasure and joy in, like you said, the way that we connect, the way that we hug each other, the way that, you know, I see another person across the street and I feel their energy and our dance and our music, but still I feel like you know, we're operating almost at like a 70% Mm. of that joy of that pleasure, but we haven't, a lot of us haven't tapped into what it would feel like to just live euphorically all the time and to know what that the the depths and capacity of our pleasure yeah that's such a beautiful question um stating your position is always political anytime you take any position that that is a stance right and it's a values-based stance more often than not and so you know to take a stance to have a position on something is especially political when we're speaking about power relations and anytime we're interacting with any other being right that we are in some form of power exchange whether we're one person is seeking or having power over or whether we're actively negotiating for how to have power with especially in in this period of time right where folks are really challenged um, and called upon to be vocal right people in positions of power um, silence 
or moderance or bystanding is also a political stance. In the same way that like being agnostic is still a religious or a spiritual position, right? That even your silence or your, you know, decision to not participate is a stance. It says something. We cannot not communicate. And so if your partner, if you and your partner are in a thing and they're just quiet, you're you're making a message of that. Right, right there, the there complicity, is, right? Right, there, there's meaning in that, right? If I ask you a question and you don't answer, I got an answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? It's like, oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> right, so there, there is no way for us to be in relationship to one another and not communicate. That's why it's really funny to me, funny in sort of like a only therapists find it funny kind of way, um, <laughs> right? When couples are like, we don't communicate like no what you actually mean is like you don't communicate in a way that is helpful um, in a way that is effective but even in the silence there's all kinds of of messages that are going back and forth and so when we talk about pleasure being political and that these are everything will boil down to some of these power exchanges then it brings us back to the question of like who gets to experience who Mm. gets to who gets to live in a body who gets to have peace who gets to have pleasure whose permission do we need in order to get there and is it even possible right and as we layer on identities that can you know be privileged or disempowered right in the context of larger society knowing that these are context-based right so i'm caribbean so being black in the caribbean um, doesn't particularly marginalize me um, yes. because many people, if not most people are black, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, right? So yes. I'm, I'm not necessarily moving, you know, in with race as sort of that forward construct in the same way that it exists in the U S even in Canada, while race is relevant here, ethnicity also makes a huge difference, a huge difference mm-hmm. in the day-to-day movement. Right. But in mm-hmm. any of these identities that we hold visible or less that it will shift how we can access the states at which we want to be in, right? So if I am in a, in a place and in a time where I am being marginalized, right? So left out, silenced, harmed, I'm witnessing or hearing about other people who look like me being harmed just for being like me, being in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place with the wrong people, right? Or literally doing nothing, sleeping in my bed, right? That yes. Yes, right? That that will change what emotional states we're able to access. And you talked about joy. Joy, I think, is actually one of the most vulnerable things a person can feel. Mm -hmm. Right? Think about how much we organize away from the risk of disappointment or rejection. Well, what are you susceptible to when you are feeling joyous, right? Yes. Like like think yes. about like the times at which you feel really private about the things that you're happy about. Mhm. Right? So like you have, <laughs> right, like you have something that you want to celebrate but you're like, "Ooh, let me not let me not say anything." Say, yes. Right? Yes. Like like what is that? What is that? That's protection. Right? That's protecting yes. the vulnerable space of joy because it really hurts when someone kills your joy. Ah. Uh. That's so, you know, that's so real. And I, even thinking about times now where really exciting things have happened mm. in my life mm. and I want to share it with like my mom, Yeah. but I, I know that 
sometimes I just don't because I feel like her response is yep. going to, you know, just <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, you know, and like yep. mother mothers have like this innate ability yeah, to yeah. Just just kind of like cut, cut you yeah. right where deep, it hurts, deep. where it burns, like yeah. sprinkle a little salt in the wound. So I find myself just kind of, you know, relying more so on friends or mm-hmm. other relationships where I feel like I know I'll get that support. Whereas like with my mom, I know that there's going to be this really, really, um, open truth about how she feels or, you know, and, and a lot of times I appreciate it. Like they say, mother knows best. I know in some instances, like I know I will get the absolute truth from her and honesty, which I appreciate in some moments and times, Mm -hmm. but in other ways, I feel like I don't always share the joyous moments because I'm afraid of how she will receive it or how, what, what her response will be. Um, And I think it's something that even in our communities when people are, you know, I do believe there's some truth to what is it kind of like grind and silence and then like mm-hmm. share what things happen. But also I think that it's okay to share with people what you're working on and things that you feel good about, even if they haven't been fully realized. But I think we have this protection around us because for myself, it comes down to being okay with showing imperfections, being okay with being excited about something. And maybe it doesn't pan out the way that I thought it was going to be. Maybe I don't want to share about a job. And then two weeks later, the job no longer exists. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that it's just, it feels very fearful. It almost feels too good to be true (laughs) to share something joyous. Right. And so listen to the vulnerability in that. And thank you for being able to like lean into that space, right? That it feel like even think about the phrasing like too good to be true right? Right. like like where did we learn that right. where did it we like i didn't i don't deserve right and who are the people who do not deserve mm. right like the like these are are not colloquialisms that happen by accident like think about how this is disproportionate who are the people who feel most protective about that vulnerable space, right? We're looking at women, we're looking at people with disabilities, right? We're looking at trans folks, right? People who have to second guess good things, right? Too good to be true that I could try this and it could disappear, right? Or maybe this wasn't really meant for me. That that belongs to a larger system. And we were taught to expect that. And the people who love us and cared about us also taught us to expect it. Right. Not mm. not to harm us, but to try and prepare us for the truth yes. of that. My parents yes. did a lot of that because there was so many places in which their joys were shattered. Right. My parents are both immigrants to Canada and their parents had to do a lot in order to bring them here. And so there are all sorts of stories and legacies that I've heard over time about deserving and not just oh they didn't they didn't believe that I deserve but I learned very early that other people did not believe that I deserved mm. and so you know I don't know if you've heard of like the two strikes rule or the three strikes rule right where you have to be twice as good yes right you know yes. so I'm I'm black and I'm a woman so you have to be twice as good to even be noticed yes right like yes. what does twice that good. yeah <laughs> twice as smart Exactly. Uh, and so what does that mean? Etc. Right. Right. And like what does that mean for the way that we then learn to operate through the world? Even if on some level I believe that I deserve, I'm also policing whether I think other people think I deserve. Right. So yes. when a good thing comes into my life, I feel good about it. And I'm like, yeah, I worked really hard. I know what I did to be here, but now I still have fear and vulnerability and doubt because what if somebody else doesn't believe? 
right? What if they cancel it or take it away? What if this affirms that I do not deserve, just like they thought? Exactly. And I think then we kind of live in this constant, for myself, in this cyclical nature of, am I good enough? Because I see in the workspace and I see with other people who are thriving or successful in one way or another. And when you really start to break it down, you're like, hey, well, you know, I have these same ideas or I contributed even more substantial ideas or I have a better scope of knowledge, but yes, I'm getting less recognition. And then it almost makes you question if you are even equipped or talented enough or smart enough to even be in those spaces when the reality is you definitely are, but it's just, we are not the system is not in place to support us. The system doesn't support the uplifting mm-hmm. of our voices in the same way. So then it's always difficult. Like you said, you're kind of swimming and trying not to drown, but it makes it really difficult when you have all of these tides and currents constantly coming in your direction. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever done this. And like, so, so when you think about it, don't name names. Right. You ever like see someone in a position that, you know, you'd like to get to or someone's doing really great work in sort of a broad sense and you look more closely and you're like, wow, that's actually really mediocre. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's what I was that's what the, I was trying to like be you know polite about it, but I'm like, I, I work, know. you know, I've, I come in contact with a lot of mediocre people and I'm like, huh. How did you, how did you yeah. make it here? <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I name that, and this is not to take anything from anyone, it's to affirm we actually don't have to be that great. <laughs> yes, yes, like, we don't have to work that hard. We don't right. have to work that hard. We don't have to kill ourselves. Right, I'm hoping my, I'm actually sheltered in place at my parents' house. Uh, so now I'm like taking like a broad look to see where they're at. I don't believe in working that hard. I just don't. Like I, yes. <laughs> right. And my, again, my parents are Caribbean. So like, I don't want to give them an <laughs> ulcer. <it> too loud. <laughs> <laughs> like, all your values are gone, mom. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> right. But I'm already a sex therapist. They've given up on me. Um, <laughs> like how much farther away can you get from the cultural narratives? Um, right. But that like we, many of us have all of these beliefs that like about how much we need to do to earn. Right. Like, yes. like think about what that means. Right. Think about how that sits in our psyche, that you need to earn it to have good things. You need to deserve them and to deserve it. You need to prove it. And there's some metric of labor and tears and sweat. Like, do you ever think about that? Like blood, sweat and tears. Like I have to pay with my literal spirit (sighs) to have good things. Blood, sweat and tears, literally the life forces. Right. Like my, like my water, right. My blood, right. Like. We have to pay in order to deserve good things. That's so wild to me. And I've worked really hard to unlearn that because I actually lived with, for a very long time, what could have been diagnosed as a panic disorder, right? And I was a a super high performer, really high achiever, right? I was good at lots and lots of things. This is not a humble brag. This is a flat out brag. Yeah. Right. Good. Right. I'm. I'm not being humble about. It. I don't feel the need to to be humble about truth. Um. Right. Like there were lots and lots of things that I was good at, but I was paying for it. I was paying mm. for it. Right. I was paying with my soul. Like I don't. I was not an unhappy child, but I. I don't have the same. You know, association to like like freedom and play. I've had to learn how to play as an adult. 
Because I, right. I didn't I didn't play. I would come home from school and study and I would come home from school and work and I would come home from school and go to practice because right? I was an athlete. Right. And so I I literally paid for it and got all the accolades and the ribbons and the trophies and the grades and the blah, 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 blah. And it was empty. And I still didn't feel like I had worked hard enough and I still didn't feel like I deserved it. And if anyone had gotten something easier than me, I was angry about it because yes. how, how did you get that? Yes. Right. Like even how? if, even if we both have it, I'm like, look at what I did to get here. I'm killing myself for this. Exactly. You, like you said, you have to pay the price and the price is extremely high. And there, so there's no peace. High. There was no peace in it for me. And so I couldn't enjoy any of it. I couldn't enjoy any of it. And think about how much of our lives we spent pursuing relationships or pleasure, right? Through this lens of I have to break my back to earn it, right? Like think about what kind of love that is, right? Like struggle love, right? As, as we might call it. Like, does that <laughs> yes. feel good to anyone? Like I worked so hard for that. Does that feel good? Do you feel good? Feel it doesn't feel good, but I think there's also an element of scarcity when it comes to that, a fear that we will not find this kind of whatever, you know, it's not necessarily love, but we have a fear that we will never have this connection right. again with a person or we will not have someone else who loves us or someone else who takes care of us. So I think that idea forces us to struggle and feel like I'm working for something that I, that means a lot to me. But a yeah. lot of times it really is not serving you well. No. But that's just what we're taught. We're taught to fight for things. We're taught to hold on to things. We're taught that things don't come easily to us. And let's talk about power again for a second. Who would teach us that we need to fight? Right? Like, who would benefit? I always have to think about that, especially as a middle child. <laughs> like, who benefits? Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> I'm always looking around like, who, who's in charge here? <laughs> yes. Right? Because, like, you're making a lot of noise. But, like, who? actually is in charge it's right in charge. so like who benefits or what systems benefit from us feeling like there is not enough to go around and if it were true why is that true like where is all where are all of the other people who could love me how about that where did they go where are they at i mean they're in prison right. a lot of them right right, right. And, and so is that my fault like am i supposed to be struggling for this love Right. For this love that I was able to, you know, manifest or create as far as I could to the best of my ability. Like, why am I personalizing that or taking that out on you? Why am I angry mm -hmm. at myself? Right. When I actually have a really great place to look at, like, where, where is everybody else? Like, oh, yes. there are systems in place. And so can I channel that energy? Anger is important. Anger is really useful. Anger lets us know when a boundary has been crossed and that energy that we get motivates us to do something about it. So I'm actually glad that people are really angry right now because it means that we cannot sit in complacency, right? And so, yes. like, but where are we putting it? And I, I don't think that there is a right or wrong answer to that necessarily, but it, it we have to think about like, wh what am I angry about and whom is actually accountable this time is definitely revealing who is accountable. Mm -hmm. um, and like you said, again, in terms of communicating, any people, any person during this time, any white person that is silent, that says so, mo so much, Absolutely. so much more than anything else that you could have spoken. Um, so I think that right now is the time 
to take to assess where the power is, where the power is lacking and how we can take that power back. And you mentioned earlier something about permission. And I think it's about giving ourselves permission to understand how the power has been taken from us, understand wh- why we are angry, what changes we can make, and to not be complacent. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's grief in that. There And there are yes. layers of grief. And so a lot of my work, you know, a, a lot of people come to you know, seeing sex therapists to learn how to fuck. And instead I teach you how to feel. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think that, that that is important, right? Like my lane of work or my scope of work, I think my actual, if we were to claim superpowers or is around emotional intelligence and empathy, right? That I can, I like to help people reclaim their power by bringing them back to their own inner wisdom. And we live in a culture largely that teaches us that our feelings don't matter yeah right that you know feelings aren't facts and yes. you know don't you know you should use your head and not your heart or you know, like all of these ways in which we discredit the value of emotion right mm. but like think of that as like indigenous like sacred wisdom right like we were the first ones to inhabit our bodies and our emotions are one of the first things that develop within that body. Like they were here first. Right. Wow, that's so powerful. Right, like they were here first. And like logic, for example, is a philosophy, right? It's a course you could teach in school. Like It's a way of thinking. It is one way of experiencing the world as one way of processing information and making decisions. And it doesn't make it better than other ways of knowing. And so I I invite people into their first place, not to say that this is the only information that matters, but it can be a really meaningful and important guide to what you might need, right? Your feelings aren't necessarily going to tell you how to get your needs met, but it might at least be telling you what is happening for you in the moment. What are you reacting to? What are you noticing? And so when you are afraid, you are sensing danger. When you are angry, a boundary has been crossed. When you are grieving, you are encountering a loss, right? Mm. And so for a lot of people who are waking up right now, right, there is the first, the loss of the safety of ignorance. Yes. Right? Ignorance is bliss for people people with privilege, right? Mm. Ignorance is death for the rest of us, right? Like Like if I didn't know, I'm in danger. Yes. Right. Exactly. So that that's why we uh, many of us did not get to be ignorant to or do not get to be ignorant to a lot of things. But there are also places in which we get to be ignorant, right? Remembering that we live nuanced and layered lives. Right. So there are ways in which we are ignorant to the plights of trans folks. There are ways in which we are ignorant to what it means to live in this world with varying cha- challenges or disabilities, right? Yes. Being neurodiverse, right? That We are not going to be aware of every single person's experience, but to give up the safety that exists in not having to know, there is a loss in that. There is a piece of you that that needs to die in that, right? And Mm. we might mourn that for a really long time, but grief also challenges us to think about what is important, right? It's a values clarifier. And it exists on our scale of disappointment. So I had an expectation that is now being not met. And the challenge for many of us in the privileged spaces that we're that we hold is that we do not have good tools to navigate what it feels like to be disappointed. 
Wow. Right? We don't have good it's tools true. for what it feels like to want something and not get it. You know, just talking everything about emotions, our emotions aren't facts is because I think, you know, I have an experience being in a, a previous relationship where my partner would always say, your, your emotions are not facts. You're, you cannot make an argument off of your emotions. And mm-hmm. I see the side, I get it. But I also feel like he was discrediting that mm-hmm. viscer- viscerally, my right. body was responding and telling me that something is not okay. Right. And I don't think enough of us listen to the that part of our body because our bodies are the first signal like our emotions our feelings are the are the first indicators that we don't feel safe that we don't feel protected that Mm -hmm. we don't feel valued and so I understand that you know maybe I cannot make a factual argument off of how I'm feeling but I do think that that is the genesis of of accepting that something is just not right. Yeah. But I think even still in the ways that some of our our siblings or our families or communities are brought up, there is this notion that feelings equal weakness. Yeah. And that speaking up on those feelings or expressing those feelings disservice to you getting ahead. And I think, you know, that goes back a lot to toxic masculinity, a lot of things, colonialism, Mm -hmm. white supremacy. It's safer that way to not reveal weaknesses. Mm. Yeah. The challenge is, you know, it it actually isn't safer in sort of like the big picture sense, remembering that our core drives are survive and connect. Okay. So disconnecting from our feelings might help us prioritize our like logistical survival, right? Yes. But does not do anything to help our connections. If I cannot feel, there is no possibility of intimacy. Mm. Right? If I am not connected to my own body, there is no way that I'm going to connect to somebody else's without risking being a source of harm. Right? If I can't feel me, I also can't feel you. And if I can't feel you, I have no way of partnering with you in a way that allows me to participate in keeping you safe from harm. And so now our relationship doesn't feel safe. Yes. Because I'm not available to you, right? Intimacy comes from the Latin word innermost. And so intimacy actually requires us to be in touch with our inner selves. I have to be able to be in a relationship with me and I open up and invite you into that. Yes. And if you cannot trust yourself to even be capable of that type of intimacy just with yourself, it's really difficult to trust anyone else with your with yourself or to trust anyone else in any capacity. And then we navigate our whole lives in avoidance of things that we maybe are aware that we are ill-equipped to mm-hmm. navigate. And so, you know, and this is true for me. And so I'll, I'll speak, you know, about myself, right? That for a really long time, I was not a person that you could come to with sadness. I just didn't have space Mm. for it because I didn't have tools for it, Mm. right? Some of the legacies of the immigrations of my family created the narrative. My my brother is much younger than me, so that narrative shifted when he was born. But, you know, the the narrative like, you know, boys don't cry. Well, we didn't have boys for a while. So the narrative was a Francis doesn't cry. Mm. And I believed that. And so I didn't cry. And if I cried, I cried in private and it was shameful. Right. Mm. And like, I wasn't going to tell anyone that that was happening to me. Like, literally, that was happening to me. Right. Like, that's how I felt about, you know, crying in tears that like they would just like happen to me. Yes. Um, And there wasn't an emotion connected to it. Right. There would just be the tears that just couldn't be contained anymore and come out. 
And so I couldn't. And so be, if someone came to you with sadness, they, they you couldn't. didn't know I how didn't, to. I didn't have a space for it because I didn't know how to handle my own sadness. I had no tools for sadness. Right? My parents weren't not comforting, but I also wasn't allowing myself to be in touch with my feelings because I didn't know I had permission for that. And there were ways in which, in some ways, I didn't have permission for that. Right. And so if anybody else was coming to me with that emotional experience, I could not be there for them. And I was, I was, you know, there, there were a lot of folks that as I was unlearning that I had a lot of apologies I had to make for folks for ways that I had harmed them without intending to cause harm, but the ways in which I just could not show up for their feelings. Wow. Right. And, And I think that a lot of us have, have room for that. And so as we think about pleasure and as we think about peace, I encourage folks to consider like where in your where in your own life might you need a revolution? Like where have you in your world been ignorant or been bystanding or not attending to or dismissing that you actually might need to be vocal about, that you actually might need to make change about? And cuz yeah, systems systems are big and we might not always feel like we have the power that as an individual we might want or need to make change and we can also be thinking about that in the context of our inner world like do i feel like i have peace or pleasure in my spiritual world in my social world in my emotional world like how am i showing up for me in any of those spaces and what would it look like for me to really pursue that with the understanding that i deserve I deserve. And it's not someone else doesn't deserve. I don't deserve more than anybody else. Like, what if at point blank we were deserving? Yes. Like, how radical could that be? What revolution would that start? You would not allow any other nonsense, any other bullshit to even infiltrate your sphere. It it would just, like, repel. You would repel all things that did not serve what you deserve. Yeah, I would I would love that. I would love that for you. <laughs> I I really would. I I really really would. And and so I invite people, you know, if that first question felt too big, you know, then maybe still an impactful question, but maybe one that might feel a little more accessible is what feeling have you not been allowed to feel? Mm. Right? Either because other people told you or taught you, right? Maybe you've tried to feel it and you haven't gotten good responses. Maybe people have flat out told you like that's wrong right? Or you're not supposed to feel that about this, right? You named your relationship, for example, and there was a feeling that was important that was being discredited. I I encourage us to think about like, what have we not been allowed to feel? Because if we remember that our feelings have a purpose, right? And they have a message, maybe there's something that we need to not be ignorant to. Maybe there is a change that we need to be making. Maybe there is an opportunity in that space for greater peace or greater pleasure. Yes, I love that. And I think that that is a great place to leave people with on this episode is what would it look like to have peace and what would it feel like to allow yourself to feel in the, in the places that maybe you haven't explored? What would that look like and how would it be reflected in your life? I want to thank you for coming. I, I feel like you just like, I just had my own therapy session right now. <laughs> 
Um, so like, are you accepting new clients? Like, first of all, where can people find you? Where can they find your work? Like, please let all of the listeners know um, where they can stay connected with you. Yeah. Uh, thank you uh, for having me. This, this is always fun to, you know, be able to just like share. So right now I'm continuously playing with, with what it means to exist on social media. I'll, I'll be transparent in that I'm like super introverted. Uh, and so social media has always been really challenging for me because I'm like, wow, thousands of conversations happening simultaneously. <laughs> this feels <laughs> yeah. like a lot. Um, but but I, am, I am playing with that space. I'm creating more um, there. And so that in some ways is kind of a hub for folks who want to just like peek in on some of the things I might be like doing or saying. My website is up for relaunch. And so that will also be um, a place to find me, follow me, and both of those places are, are my name. Um, so my website is shadeenfrancis.com. My Instagram is shadeenfrancislmft. Um, and I'm also creating more things that I, I mostly do things offline, truthfully. Um, but we are in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, <laughs> so. Yes, that, that whole thing. Well, like two, two pandemics, really. <laughs> yeah, what, what, one we've been living with um, and, you know, the other is newer. Um, yes. But, you yes. know, in, in those spaces, um, I'm also just feeling really em- emboldened to create more um, that I can send to you. So if anyone is listening to this and would... Um, might have specific requests, please feel free to shoot me a message um, in either of those places. Even if I don't respond right away, I see you and I'm using that to create the things that, that people are feeling like they need. I, I feel committed to your peace and to your pleasure. So let me know how I can help you. Yay. Wonderful. And I will be sure to include that, all of the information into the show notes. So people have easy access to all of your resources that you just listed. And thank you to everyone for tuning in and rocking with us during, you know, this difficult time. I hope that you're finding peace and joy in any small way and any grand way, but it's yours to define. So please like, subscribe, share all of that good stuff. We appreciate you and we'll catch you next week. So thank you, Shadeen, again. Mm, Thank you.